Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, Keeping the Lights On, we talk to Art House, Chief Risk Officer for the state of Connecticut. After a career in the intelligence space, Art was recruited to the state of Connecticut to focus initially on the risks facing utilities, power, water, gas, the places where cyber can quickly become kinetic. His approach to bringing the government and private sector together has become literally a model for collaboration worldwide. Now on to Art to hear how he tackled these interesting challenges. For people who don't know your background and kind of how you ended up in this role, I'd love to kind of just start there. My background is mainly in international relations, but I've done some um, corporate stuff and communications as well. My job in the early part of this this decade, I was with the uh, intelligence community in the Obama administration. I was with the director of national intelligence and then with one of the operational agencies, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And the reason that's relevant is that I was appointed to come back to Connecticut, which is where I'm from, to chair Connecticut's Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, which is Connecticut's Public Utilities Commission. And when I was leaving Washington, there were people in the intelligence community in Washington and also at the Energy Department who met with me and pointed out that there is a national interest in the cybersecurity issues related to critical infrastructure, meaning utilities. So gas, natural gas, water, uh, electricity, and so forth are vulnerable to cyber attack. And yet they are not, for the distribution of those vital services, they are not under the purview of the federal government. They are state regulated, just as, for example, the insurance industry is state regulated. So, and that was a matter of concern to people who are in the national security community because they are concerned about foreign entities, both nation states and private entities, penetrating our critical infrastructure uh, distribution networks. And they pointed out that uh, the Public Utility Commission's are not in shape to take on those threats, to uh, regulate them for several reasons. And they noted that me going up to Connecticut to do this, that uh, they asked if I might be interested in doing that, given my background in the intelligence community, to look into cybersecurity and see if Connecticut could uh, take some initiatives in that area. So that's the background. There are a couple of reasons why uh, utilities have difficulty getting into this and what happened in Connecticut, but that's a summary answer to your question. Yeah, I think I hadn't realized before, you know, I started poking around in this space, the sort of divide between kind of production and distribution, you know, that the that some of the sort of transmission lines and the production facilities are under sort of federal uh, sort of control or at least oversight, but then the local distribution isn't. So, uh, and that's just sort of a historic, am I getting it right? That's just sort of- You got it right. No, that's, that it was organized. that's exactly what it is. It's, it's under state control. And yeah. the regulators in the states have their hands full. There are, well, let's see, a small public utilities commission would be say, there may be some that only have three or four people. Uh, they do go up to five or six or seven, but let's just, Using round numbers, let's assume there are about five per state and 50 states. You've got 250 regulators. Of those, when I came on, only four had security clearances. 
And of those, I think uh, most of them did not have top secret. They were just secret security clearances. So they were not in a position to know about what all the threats were. Secondly, most public utilities commissioners are lawyers or financial people or engineers. Often they have worked in state government. Some are former state legislators, and they have their hands full. They regulate natural gas, water, electricity, sometimes telecommunications, and sometimes other things such as, oh, they get into taxis or ferry boats or things. They do law. They do finance. They do engineering. They do mergers and acquisitions, rate cases, uh, storm reviews, all that kind of thing. And their uh, resources are limited. And they do not have personnel in cybersecurity. So that as cybersecurity has risen as an issue, the state public utilities commissions looked on this as a new challenge for which they had neither personnel nor budget resources. And so it's been difficult. And I, I say that with great empathy for my colleagues in, in that field. I mean, this is a, uh, you've already got more work than you can possibly handle across a broad array of both subject matters and uh, technical dimensions. And now the people are saying, and what are you doing about this new challenge? So yeah, it is very, very difficult for them to take a look at this. I had the, uh, whatever, the either the disadvantage or advantage, depending on how you look at it, of I, I am, I'm not an attorney. I'd done some finance work before, but I did not have the normal background for a public utilities commissioner. And I was very concerned about cybersecurity, having worked in that area when I was in Washington. And so I talked to our governor, Governor Malloy here in Connecticut, and pointed out that this is a very serious danger facing the states and recommended that we get involved in it. And he was extremely supportive and said, go ahead. So uh, that's what we did. We put together a strategy and then an action plan for Connecticut to become involved in cybersecurity threats to the critical infrastructure. Yeah, and I, I had a chance to sort of review parts of that report, which were great. I mean, it was sort of very, my background and a lot of our listeners' background is not sort of a deeply technical one. You know, it's we're interested in the space, but we're not, you know, we're not writing code and, and reading code. But it was you know, gave sort of great history and and some really interesting kind of strategies for how to tackle it. So those people, uh, and we'll definitely link to that report if that's okay. Sure, please on do. On this episode, so because I think it's it's a great place for people to start. But for those who haven't read it, what are the sort of highlights and and top points that that you know came out of that, that yeah. report and that process? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I should say that. Every state has an emergency management authority, and they face different kinds of threats. In California, you have to be ready to deal with uh, forest fires and floods and so forth. In the Midwest, you often get tornadoes to look at. On the East Coast, everybody on the East Coast occasionally gets a hurricane. I'm up in New England, where we also get ice storms in the winter. So emergency response here tends to be dealing with the outages of electricity from a hurricane or an ice storm or something like that. What do you do when that happens? happens. But even before you get to that point, how do you prevent a cybersecurity attack or penetration from taking place? Well, in 2014, I completed a strategy to address cybersecurity defense. And I'd shared that with the utilities and got, you know, they gave them the draft copies and said, how would you change this? And so by the time it was completed in 2014, the utilities were basically supportive of the effort and had a chance to weigh in. 
the governor announced it, and that was a big deal because there's a difference between a regulator coming out with a strategy and a governor calling a press conference, inviting legislative leadership and the CEOs of the major utilities and saying, we are now going to take cybersecurity for our utilities very seriously, and here is a strategy, and I support it. And that, of course, put it on a, a higher level than had I just done it on my own. The strategy called for an action plan. Given all these strategic points that are made in that document, what are we going to do about it? And what we did do about it was we bargained with utilities. Now, there, there are kind of two ways in which you can get action in this area. One is the traditional way in which utilities and their regulators interact, which is a formal docket. The witnesses are sworn in. It is recorded. Public is invited. There are rulings from the bench. The ensuing decision uh, is binding, and it can have financial consequences and so forth. In other words, it is a formal legal process. It's called docket management and so on. That's how it works. That's usually how we got things done. In this instance, I offered the utilities to have an informal meeting. I mean, this we'd never done this before. The utilities face cybersecurity challenges, and the state has decided that it needs to do something about it. Now, how would you like to proceed? We can have a formal docket, and that's normally the way we do business. Or if you'd like, we can all sit around a table and decide how we're going to manage this in the future. I had a strong preference for the informal negotiating process because we could be more candid. It would move more quickly. The utilities agreed. So we proceeded to have what we called technical meetings. And what that they were serious. I mean, you put on a suit and tie that day and you went to work and you, yeah. you all respected each other, but it was not recorded. It was not given to legal procedures and so forth. And we bargained and we started with one session for all utilities. And then we had sessions for each individual uh, utility area, water, gas, electricity, telecommunications. And we came up with, after a lot of work, just to shorten all this, we came up with an agreement that three sectors agreed to, and the three were natural gas transmission, electricity distribution, and water. And distribution, I should say, for all three. Telecommunications, meaning broadband and cable, decided not to participate, and they just opted out, and so they were not included in the agreement. But the agreement called for, I would say, four or five basic things. One is that there would be an annual review of the cybersecurity defense capabilities of the major utility companies. Two, the companies could choose the standard by which they would be reviewed. Mm. And they all picked the same one uh, individually. It's called the Cybersecurity Capabilities Maturity Model, or it's known in the trade as C2M2, which is like a big take-home exam in which you grade yep. yourself on how you're doing. Third, that there would be four state officials participating in these reviews. The companies could bring whomever they wanted. In other words, it's, it's going to be at the company headquarters and if you want to bring in a big staff or a small staff or external consultants, do whatever you'd like. But the obviously, this was sensitive information. And I was interested in bringing in several state authorities. And the utilities all said, this is really sensitive. We do not want a large audience. And so we agreed there would be four state officials, two regulators and two emergency managers. Fourth point was that 
it would be confidential, that uh, the information that would be shared would not be disclosed publicly uh, except for a final report. In other words, you, you, the utility said, we'll tell you what's going on, but you need to protect us because we don't want you to go out and, and make public what is very sensitive corporate information. We thought that was certainly fair. And then finally, the fifth item was that the final report that was to be written on what we found would be agreed to by all the parties. And it was a six-page report that uh, when it was finally done um, and uh, was agreed on by everyone. So we finished, we wrapped that up and held the first set of meetings. We, we agreed on that in 2016. We had the first meetings last year in 2017. And we met with uh, the four Connecticut state authorities, met with each of four different companies, and I'll give you their names, Eversource, Avangrid, Connecticut Water, and Aquarian. In those meetings, um, we had long discussions. Sometimes they took half a day, and I can talk more about how it went. But um, did a very thorough review of where they were, strengths and weaknesses in their cybersecurity defense, as well as their recovery, uh, response and recovery capacities. We finished the report and we issued it publicly in October of 2017. And that got some national attention because that was, I'm told that was the first time that you had a, a structured review by state officials of the distribution capabilities of, of their uh, public utilities. So it came out then and, uh, we're doing it again. We're about to start the 2018 review. I must say it was um, constructive. Once we went through all the negotiations to agree how to do this, then we all had the same thing. We all had a common objective, which was to prove that by collaborating, we could get serious work done. I think the, the state is interested in finding out what is the cybersecurity defense capability of the utilities and to make sure it's adequate. The utilities we're interested in avoiding f further regulation and having this communication and this understanding by voluntarily collaborating rather than by legislation and, and regulation. Now, that's a mouthful I've just gone through. That's a long statement, but that's how we proceeded and that's how it's currently operating. Yeah, no, and I, you know, having had a lot of conversations both in this sort of thinking about sort of regulated industries as well as sort of other sort of spheres where you're where there's concern of attack, whether that's corporate environments or, you know, we I've actually had a lot of conversations around kind of the electoral system and thinking through those. I applaud you, right? I think the road to hell is is paved with good intentions and there's a lot of easy ways to get kind of off a path that's actually moving you forward. And I think the process as you described it is a is a really good one because you've got multiple individuals and different entities sort of providing some checks and balances. At the same time, you've not done it in such a public way that you might reveal sensitive information and kind of willing to, to create a process that you can actually get stuff done. So I don't know if, if that's all your brainchild, hats off to you for sure. How did that sort of come about that? You know, was that discussion or how did you, you guys come to this sort of process? Well, thank you for that comment. Yeah, I guess I, I was the architect, but I had a lot of help. Start off with the fact that neither the governor of Connecticut nor legislative leaders wanted to continue 
the status quo, which is what the, the, they did not know what was going on in the utilities. And if a constituent or someone were to stop, a reporter or something, and ask, what is the state of cybersecurity in electric distribution or natural gas or water? They did not want to be in a position of saying, I don't know. That just simply politically was no longer tolerable for them. So they agreed to support and lend their weight to creating a new system, one. Secondly, I don't know, I've worked in federal government and in international affairs, my background, and I, I realized that you things that can be negotiated where everybody agrees on the outcome work better than things that are imposed. Uh, and if you pass a law saying you're going to have to do this, then you know, people will do the minimum sometimes, and they'll find a way to do just the minimum. In other words, to comply legally rather than having a cooperative working uh, outcome. And, and I got to hand it to the utilities as well. I thought they were they took the the appropriate approach to this. If we can get a working system that works for us, the utilities, why not try it? And so they they agreed to bargain and, and come up with something. So it really was a process, and 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 frankly, it, it worked. I tell you a little side story on that. When I have gone on from that to do cyber a cybersecurity strategy and action plan beyond just critical infrastructure for the whole state. I'm I'm now the cybersecurity risk officer for the state of Connecticut. And as such, I do some international work because our state has been out in front on some of this. I do some work for the State Department, which is seeking to help other countries strengthen their cybersecurity strategies. And uh, I was at a meeting in the Black Sea region a couple months ago when we were meeting with a number of countries to help them with their strategies. And someone from the European Union was there speaking about ways to help the uh, regulatory uh, relationship with utilities. And the speaker referred to the Connecticut model. Well, that got my attention because I, I wasn't, you know, I mean, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what he was talking about. But as as he proceeded to speak, he set it up as the collaboration model. In other words, if you can sit down and collaborate and agree on what the outcome is, that is one way to proceed. The other way to proceed, obviously, is legislation and regulation. So I'm not sure how far we can take this or how far it will go. But so far, at least we had a we've had a first successful year, and we're about to start a second one. But I think this entire relationship has a long way to go. And that uh, 10, 20 years from now, we will look back at the period of the you know mid-2000 teens and realize we were just at the beginning of coming to grips with cybersecurity. And it probably will look quaint and uh, rudimentary uh, 10, 20 years from now. But at least this, I think, is a positive start and is testing how far we can go by working together. Yeah, and I, I think what I've been struck by in a lot of the conversations is, you know, we always think, you know, there's a lot of talk and think about sort of APT, advanced pers- persistent threat, you know, like nation state, right. kind of the, the, the scariest of and most sort of advanced of attacks. But often, yeah. you know, when you start digging into where companies are and what, what's going on, often, you know, even just the basics aren't being taken care of. And, and it's often sort of other, there, it's not because people are sort of negligent, but there's often different pieces that are preventing them from, from actually moving forward across sort of to secure their environments, you know, whether that's systems that are old and, you know, but still usable or, 
other pieces. You know, they're, they're thoughtful. But the decision, every decision has been thoughtfully made, but it is a compromise. And so, you know, putting a negotiation sort of framework where you can have those sort of honest conversations is really valuable. Well, I think you're right. There's a big difference between public utilities and, and other business. In public utilities, if there is compromise and shutdown, which is possible. Now, uh, just two yeah. references. It has happened in Ukraine. And I've yeah. been doing some work. In, I've been in Ukraine. I've been working with the people who were managing that system. So, And when you lose electricity in today's world, it's, it's not an inconvenience. It's a matter of survival. Yeah. And so this, is, this becomes not just a would like to have, but uh, something that, that has to continue. You have to, you have to have electricity. That's just a, a major point for, and they got their hands full. But the consequences of a shutdown are very significant. For the the whole, the business community covers a lot of different ground. Some are extremely serious. Suppose, for example, you had a bank that was shut down, and the bank couldn't tell you whether you had any money or not, or you couldn't. You couldn't use your debit card or things like that. I mean, obviously, that could be disastrous. On the other hand, there are other forms of business where cyber attack would be an inconvenience, but not the end of the world. I mean, if a convenience store got hacked or a, a real estate firm, it could be, really be a bad day for that firm. But the public might not undergo the kind of damage that it would if it didn't have electricity or couldn't bank. Now, how are we going to do this as a country? I think the public utilities model will probably nationally be some form of cooperation, as we're trying in Connecticut, and regulation, as other states are doing. But how about business? Business is just naturally suspicious of and resistant to regulation. They they don't you know they just don't want more regulation. On the other hand, what are they doing about it? Well, we found in Connecticut that half of all businesses in Connecticut have not done a risk assessment. The big ones have. I mean, here in Connecticut, we have defense industries. Yep. We have we have a lot of insurance and financial services and healthcare. They obviously take cybersecurity very very seriously. They have defenses and so on. But if you get beyond them especially small and medium-sized businesses, manufacturers. Every dollar placed in cybersecurity is a dollar that does not go to product development or marketing or salaries or whatever. And there is also a, uh, while there's recognition that this is a serious problem, there's also resistance to doing anything about it. And sometimes it's just hope that it won't strike me. (laughs) But we're seeing that uh, with ransom attacks, with all kinds of other penetrations, that it is something a business needs to take seriously. And we have not resolved that one yet. Businesses, as I say, uh, at least half of them haven't, haven't even done a risk assessment, do no training. And, you know, the unfortunately, the consequences of being penetrated and hacked are very, very serious. You find out that uh, a company that undergoes a hack loses customers, has more difficulty hiring employees, its stock price will fall, its brand image is, is damaged. You know, it has lingering and ongoing consequences afterwards. And so, how do we get there? And that's a future challenge, but one that I think we're going to have to respond to quite soon. Yeah. I mean, at the state level, are you guys trying to, I mean, not from a regulatory perspective, but at least provide resources or guidance or anything? Or is that you sort of, do you think that there's enough out there from sort of the private sector to do that? 
I'm curious at, at the state level, I, I want to say I saw something from New York City in the last few days where they were trying to uh, provide some resources and training. Probably but did, just, but just, Andy. <laughs> yeah, you probably saw that. And, okay, let's just follow on. I last reported that we, uh, in 2017, we had our first cybersecurity review of, of public utilities in Connecticut. Now, the governor turned around and said, okay, House, uh, you're no longer going to do public utilities regulation. You will do cybersecurity for the whole state. So in the autumn of 2016, I got a new job, which was to try to put together a strategy and an action plan for the whole state. We put together the strategy. It's available online, and, and the Governor Malloy issued it in July of 2017, and you and I are now speaking at the very end of March. It's almost April 2018. And we're about to put out an action plan. We'll probably do so within the next month. And it, it answers your question because the governor said, I'd like an action plan for five areas, state government, municipal government, private business, higher education, and law enforcement. Well, that covers a lot of ground. But the answer is that, no, uh, Connecticut is not prepared in these areas, nor is any other state. We're just at the starting point. And there are some very fundamental things that we need to do in these areas. I mean, some of them are, are very obvious. State government needs to uh, look at its firewalls and uh, look at its cyber hygiene. Are the systems patched? Does it have... Uh, uh, does it have a good culture of cyber awareness? Does it have two-factor authentication where it, it needs to? Municipalities, you know, five years ago, you would not have put cybersecurity in towns and cities in the same paragraph. Now you have to because they are sitting on valuable information, tax records, health records, and so forth. And fire departments and police departments have been, have been hacked and have, have been ransomed. So, uh, and in uh, in higher education, there is a nationwide shortage of about three hundred and fifty thousand, three hundred and fifty thousand cybersecurity warriors. Uh, in other words, uh, people skilled in in defense of cybersecurity available for hire in the private sector. In Connecticut, that gap is four thousand, and we need to look at the production of them because we are not turning out nor is any state turning out an adequate number of graduates to go help uh, be cybersecurity defenders for companies. In uh, law enforcement, we need to look at uh, both strengthening our investigations capacity, the intelligence capacity to find out where the threats are, but also just think of it this way. If someone is trying to break into your home or your business, you call the police and they'll probably be there fairly quickly. I certainly hope they will. What do you do if you see attempts to penetrate your business online or you're looking at people who are trying to get into your banking account or you are hacked? What do you do? Well, we have to, as a society at the municipal level, at the state level, look at who you call and who's right. available to help you. What are the cyber crimes that, you know, what are they? Are, they, are, are the laws adequate? Do we have people within our police force who can help out, who can look after cyber criminals? I mean, so all of this is new terrain, and we, we've got a lot of work to do. I think in, in Connecticut, we're trying to get started. The last thing you ever want to say is that we are safe or it's working or things are okay, because 
I think anything can be penetrated today. The, uh, our intelligence agencies have been penetrated. Our military has been penetrated. The White House has been penetrated. Major corporations have. And so if somebody really wants to get into uh, someone's computer system, they can do it. And I think we need to recognize it and make it more difficult for them to do so and limit the damage that they can do. So that's what we're trying to do. And we'll have an action plan coming out within the next month or so that addresses some of those challenges. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was interesting, you know, at the conference that you spoke at last week, uh, I was at Billington, you know, kind of the day before on Wednesday yeah. and which was great. And, and actually I'm due to, to interview uh, Dr. Ross, you know, Ron Ross from NIST. Yep, I heard of him. You know, so, you know, they just came out with uh, kind of the new, it's not even standards yet, but really at that conference, particularly um, de- some of the guys from Department of Homeland Security were, you know, they were talking about kind of the shift in strategy and kind of as you've seen things, just the level of attacks increase, that they're almost beginning to leave behind the term cybersecurity and move to cyber resilience, right? Because, okay, good. Uh, which was interesting, you know, because it was, it, you know, it's just, you know, maybe it's semantics, right, to change the, change the terms. But, I'm, you know, particularly with your, you know, with your background uh, working with utilities and, you know, where this conversation started in terms of thinking about uh, emergency response. And I was, I was struck by, you know, the idea of maybe we should start thinking about how we live or prevent these types of attacks more the way we think about how we prepare for hurricanes that we don't really talk about, like, stop, no one thinks that they're going to, to completely stop hurricanes, but it's thinking about preparation and redundancies and backups and a response plan. You know, the thought is more about, you know, the perimeter becomes less of kind of the area where you're putting the majority of your focus, just stopping things, but really how you respond to them. I'm curious, sort of your thoughts on that, on that strategic kind of shift or, you know, as you, right, people are already talking about the Connecticut model, right? So, you know, I think you guys have an, have an opportunity to sort of lead the conversation sort of well beyond the state potentially. What's your sort of feelings on that, thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, you raise a really good issue. And I have, all right, two thoughts. One is on the resilience. I like that term. But there has to be much greater cooperation in two ways. One is between the federal government and the states. And the second is between private business and government. The, a lot of the knowledge, the intelligence about what is coming in, what nation states are doing, what international actors and so forth are doing, is detected by our intelligence agencies, naturally. They're in that business. There has to be some way in which they can share that information productively and that the states can work with the federal government, not only for detection, but also for for management. The FBI and the state police in different states have to learn who's doing what, get to know each other and cooperate. And that goes all the way down to the municipal level. So federal and state cooperation. But secondly, is between private business and the federal government, or between private business and government, both states and federal. If you look at the defense industry, they are the most advanced in cyber resilience. Why? Three reasons. One, they've always taken security seriously. If you make uh, jet aircraft or nuclear submarines or uh, any kind of a defense system, you have to take security very seriously. You always have. That's one. Secondly, you cooperate horizontally. There's an association of about 70 defense contractors that gets together and 
talks about what cyber threats they're finding. This is not collusion on product development or on marketing or anything. This is simply, what do we find bad guys doing? What's happening? What are new forms of penetration? And they share that information. That's healthy. And the third is they work with the federal government more extensively than in other sectors to determine what are the, through intelligence, what are the national threats, what, what, or coming from other nation states to try to penetrate. Now, that model might have to be replicated for other sectors. So that's one in, entire scope. Secondly, as you said, managing the consequences. And yes, I think that a cyber attack, uh, we need to be as good at a cyber attack as we are at a flood or a fire or a hurricane or something else. Now, when a hurricane comes up the east coast of the United States and gets out of the Caribbean, hits Florida and North Carolina yeah. and comes, comes up, we know what to expect. We've done it before. We know what a hurricane is. We just want to know how big it is and where it's going to be. But we, there is no reason for fearing unanticipated behavior. A hurricane does not turn around and come back and hit a second time or a third time. A cyber attack might. A hurricane is not controlled by a foreign power. And so when you have the word cyber attack and there's no electricity, you can find panic if, you don't, if you're not ready. You have to communicate immediately. A governor needs to get out there immediately and say what he or she knows and does not know and what they're going to do about it. The public anxiety could be extremely high, and it, it, the communications have to be prepared. There are also contingencies. If this were the work of a foreign attack, there could also be a propaganda war or disinformation that is put out. How do you handle that? Your answers have to be written out ahead of time. You can't sit around saying, here is a propaganda attack suggesting that all water in the state is now poisoned. Gee, what should we say about that? You have to think of that contingency or any one of a number of other contingencies, write out a response and be ready. And so that when it happens, it says, we need to use paragraph 33 now. And the answer is, yeah, go with it. Not, would you please go back there and write paragraph 33 about this particular contingency? So you have to be ready for all kinds of things. And the third thing is, I think you need to use both social media and include uh, reporters and editors in your rehearsals. You know, a cyber attack ought to greet emergency managers the same way it, they greet other dangers. And, okay, we've got a cyber attack on our hands. And it's not, oh, my goodness, like Henny Penny, the sky is falling. It should be, we've rehearsed this. We know certain things to anticipate. We know what we're going to do next. We have lines of communications that are established. And you have to include the reporters and the editors because their credibility in conveying the news would be absolutely essential. And mm -hmm. for military, police, emergency managers, there is a just a natural, visceral hesitation to share emergency management procedures and news with the reporters. I mean, they, they just, that's not in their DNA. And yet the public confidence will be so tested by a cyber attack that you will need them as allies. And so now you got to set the ground rules for the rehearsals. We're going to have a test and we want you guys to understand what happens during a test, because if this were real, you would have a patriotic national obligation duty to go out and, and do what reporters do, explain what's going on, explain what the truth is and what the truth is not, and, and help 
put down rumors and to help to communicate yeah. vital messages. And so, yeah, I think that this is a, an entire area in which we are presently not adequately prepared. A number of states are, are getting started in that. I know Connecticut is. But it's a new challenge, and it's one that we have to be familiar with so that if there is a cyber attack, we are not wondering for the very first time uh, who to communicate with and what to do. Yeah. It's comforting, you know, I think from the outside, we sort of, I think a lot of the media, right, spends a lot of time sort of getting, whipping up sort of hysteria. I mean, it's what, it's what sells newspapers and, and keeps people glued to the, the TV and whatnot. But it's nice to talk with someone who, you know, you are clearly, you know, you've been spending years doing this and thinking about it very sort of logically and strategically, right? And, and it is, it's a tough challenge because it hits on so many different levels, you know, the technological level, the sort of the PR sort of media level, the, the sort of public consciousness. So it's not an easy problem, but it's, it's nice to hear uh, you kind of thinking about it on that on so many different levels. And I, I was down at a meeting where they were talking with the election commissioners and particularly this, the communication action plan was echoed. You know, there was a document produced by the Belfer Center. I don't know if you guys, you know them up at Harvard. Oh, sure. You yeah, yeah, them? yeah. They had two action plans, one on the sort of technical side, but then the other on the kind of communication side, which was, was quite well done, sort of walking through this sort of pre-gaming game plan stuff. So nice to hear sort of things are coming together and similar thoughts kind of running through different verticals. Okay. But this is great. I really enjoyed this. We'll get this sort of transcribed for you to review and whatnot. I didn't hear anything that wouldn't, wouldn't want to kind of get out in the sort of the public sphere. I do a little bit of these kind of conversations, and no, I'm very comfortable with the way it went, Andy. But and that's fine. And if you you know down the road, if you other things you want to talk about, you got my number. We need to communicate about this. It's yeah. very important. So I I welcome interest of people like you in all of this. And then thanks for calling me. No, 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 thank you. There's an event in New York City, which maybe I have you. I'm not sure. I wanted to make sure it was on your radar screen. The Hack NYC conference, which is sort of all about kind of critical infrastructure and sort of thinking. Through through defending and sort of protecting it. Is that, are you aware of that conversation? Have you seen that, that no, one's coming up? that one's not on my radar screen, but it's certainly a busy field. You're absolutely right. There's an awful yeah. lot going on. Are you up in, in Hartford? I'm in Hartford. Where, I'm, okay. I'll make sure to throw you an invite to that. I know it's early okay. May. I want to say May 5th or 8th. I don't have the calendar in front of me, but I'll send that to you and if you get a chance, it might be a good spot for you to kind of be talking about this stuff. I mean, gosh, I don't, it'd be great. Well, thanks so much. I'll be in touch. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andy. Take care. Bye-bye. 